want to revisit those he gets us ads in a way that might make me unpopular with this crowd. Plus, it seems like giant corporations are buying up individual houses. I'm going to try to make a biblical case that we shouldn't let them on this week's Core Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be Tut, tut, you, some of you, tut-tutted me because after starting the year strong with our chronological Bible reading on the show, I just forgot last week, and I'm sorry, listen, we're all flawed, okay, plus I'm in sermon month, I'm in a month of sermons, I got a lot of Bible running through me, I don't remember where I taught Bible and when, but I got at least 10 of you who emailed me or sent me a tweet that said, hey, hey, I thought you were doing Bible stuff on the show, okay, sorry. And also, thank you. Thank you for wanting to hear Bible stuff. And so we're going to start there here in just a second before we move on to those other those other items that I mentioned there in the teaser. We are going to endeavor every episode, either start or somewhere in it, uh, that, that if you were reading through the Bible chronologically this year, I want to talk about something you might have read this week because we need to be reading all of the Bible because all of it fits together, one unified story leading to Jesus, as the guys over at the Bible Project say. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. And when I say on his radio talk, I mean up until March 31st, uh, meaning my last show will be the Saturday before that. So uh, make sure you're following along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Look for Corey Truax. Uh, you can get to CoreyTruax.com for more. Uh, so things will be changing here soon, but uh, for, for a few more Saturdays, you'll find me on the FM dial at 91.9 and 89.7. If you, and then just again, follow along. Let's keep this up for a little while longer, for as long as the Lord wants me to keep talking into this microphone. And when it becomes clear he doesn't want me to, I'm going to stop. I'm going to hang out with my wife and do other stuff. All right. Chronological Bible reading. The jokes abound on this type, on this time of year when it comes to chronological Bible reading, because it, whether you're doing it chronologically or in some other plans, it's usually around February that you hit Leviticus, the book of the laws. And you probably heard the jokes. I've heard preachers do these jokes that, you know, it's around now, you get to Leviticus, everyone gives up on their Bible reading plan because it's the thou shouts. It's a lot of thou shouts and a lot of thou shalt nots. It's the laws that governed Israel as a people group. Well, most of them, or a lot of those laws. I would add, Leviticus is our enemies. I do mean the devil, but I mean his his acolytes, people in the secular world who dislike the Christian faith and dislike Christians. They think of Leviticus as their whipping boy. It's that thing I've made fun of with you for over 10 years. The people that feel like if they can just say shellfish, they beat the Bible. Because the the, the Bible says, don't eat shellfish, and you guys eat shellfish, so everything you think is is irrelevant, and I've disregarded it by mentioning shellfish. Also, mixed fiber clothing, I win. Right, so the very lazy skeptics of the faith, they love Leviticus. It's the it's the whipping boy of the, of the secularists because there's some bizarre or seemingly bizarre laws in there. And so it gets made fun of as the place where we stop because it gets boring, or it's the place that the, the world makes fun of it because it seems like a weird law book. But for us... For the believer, Leviticus is the law, or a lot of it, and we love the law. David said, I, I meditate 
on your law day and night. The Psalm 119 is all about the law of the Lord and how David loves it. I quoted to you recently one of my favorite Psalms that your borders, Lord, they fall in pleasant places for me. Your law falls in a pleasant place. I love the law. If you just start reading through the Psalms, you're going to see it. David loves the law of the Lord. And for us, we might wonder, how do you love the law about making sure that if you dig a hole or a well, you cover it up so animals don't fall in it? How you love that one? How you love that law about what the priests have to wear? What, what do you mean? How do you love the law? Well, I think I want to give you at least three things that I just jotted down. Three ways to love the law, to love Leviticus, and this isn't exhaustive because I could give you the the three uses of the law that we get in the New Testament. That it's your uh, it's your mirror. It shows you what's wrong with you. Uh, I forgot the other two off the top of my head, I'm, and, and I apologize for that. But there's a lot you could say about loving the law. But here's just three that I wrote down really quick before I turned on this microphone. Number one, recognize our need for the law to expose us. It's one of my favorite lines in the original Amazing Amazing Grace hymn. Uh, grace has taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved. And so we have fear of God that's good, his wrath on sin. That's good that we have that fear, but it's his grace that relieved it. I know I've got God's grace. I am now relieved. My fear of him is relieved. But who taught my heart to fear? Who told me I had a problem? Well, the law did. I looked at the law and saw that I have idols. They may not be technically engraven images, but I have idols. And I wear the Lord's name in vain from time to time. And I've not always honored my father and my mother. And I've looked with lust and I've coveted my neighbor's stuff or experience or status. I've lied. I needed the law to expose me. And it's good that it did. Because otherwise my rotten heart would have never known it had a problem to seek out a solution. So how can you love the law? Well, you recognize that we need it. We need the law to expose us. But then number two, here's the harder one that I want to spend some time on and slow down on. Recognize its wisdom. If you start reading through Leviticus, and admittedly, I did some of this off the top of my head, so I think some of these I'm about to mention are in Deuteronomy, but the the concept applies. Recognize the wisdom of God's law. It will be hard in some. It will require meditation. It will require seeking counsel and commentary and coming back to it time and time again, I just wrote down four. There's a a law in, I think, Leviticus, it could be Deuteronomy, that says you need to have a battlement on your roof. That a lot of, you know, the, the dwellings back then were small and you would meet with visitors up on your roof. And so there was a law that you need to have something on your roof, like a railing, because if you are negligent, and how you live and someone falls off your roof and gets hurt, that's going to be on you. So put a battlement up. What? Okay, well, it's 2023 and I live in a house. What What does it have to do with me? Oh, well, yeah, just don't be negligent in the things that you have. Take care of your stuff so as to make sure it doesn't harm other people. Take care of your yard. Take care of your house. Take care of your car. Be diligent with the things you own. And when people are coming over to your house... Do things like secure, if, you, if you're a gun owner, secure your gun. Secure the chemicals in your home that a, a child might get into that's visiting. They're, just the concept is make your house safe. 
when you're having visitors, be safe for other people. Don't be negligent with what God's given you. It might be hard for us to meditate and get there, but that's, that's what that law is. And apply it to modern day. That's how it works. I, again, I, th- I think it's Leviticus. This could be Deuteronomy. I mentioned it earlier. It's one of, I, I remember re- reading this law the first time, or not the first time, but in my adult life, I read it and went, what? It was, it, depending on your translation, it's, it's uh, digging a well versus digging like a hole. And the law is cover the holes you dig. If you dig in the ground, cover the holes or fill them in. Because an animal might fall in there. And if an animal falls in there that belongs to someone else, you got to make it right. And c- consider what animals were. Animals were property for promotion of a profit or just what you needed to live. You used your ox to plow the field so you could feed your family. You used, probably not horses, but you probably used some animal to ride around on. So you hurt someone's transportation as they're trying to manage their, their stuff. And animals fall in horses. They're not great at, excuse me, a- animals fall in holes. They're not always great at depth perception and their balance. And so if you hurt someone else's property by your negligence, make it right. So equally, if you in your neighborhood, you're playing with something in your street, you don't take it up and it hurts someone's car, make it right. If you are, you're your kids driving the go-kart around the neighborhood, you, you have it properly, you know, instructed that kid, that kid runs into someone's car, dings it up, make it right. Take the things that you do, even if they are for your own good, like digging a well, if you're doing something, do it in a way that's responsible enough to not harm your neighbor. This is just good common sense neighborly behavior. Take care of your neighbor, live in a way that considers others, and when you fail to do that, make it right. I remember in, I think, Leviticus, there's a law that says something like, if there is a robber, like a home, I think it's robber, if someone invades the house for purpose of robbery in the nighttime, and the homeowner or the domicile owner kills the intruder, then the homeowner is shouldn't be liable for his death. But if it happens in the day, then you you can't just kill the robber. So there's there's an idea here, some some truth for right now. You we we love life. We don't ever want to take life unnecessarily. And so if you're in the daytime and someone invades your house and you can dissuade them or keep keep them from doing what they're doing without having to kill them, do that. At night, you have to presume if someone's coming in, they, they mean to do you harm. You don't know if they just want to steal stuff. They might be coming in to hurt you. And so you're not liable for their death. Here's a funny one. I, I've had this one tossed at me by curious Bible readers, never by a skeptic, but by a Christian who wanted to know what it means. And I had to do some work on it. There's a law that says, don't boil a baby goat in the mother goat's milk. I'm going to say it again. It's in your Bible. Don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And I I had to do a lot of research. There's a lot of different, not a lot, there's like three different theories on what this could mean. But I landed on this one, that there were, we have some evidence that in the ancient world, that was that was done as a matter of superstition by some people around, by some of the non-Jewish people around. You would take the offspring of a mammal, often a goat, and then you would boil the baby. You I mean, you kill the baby. You wouldn't boil it, boil it alive. And it was supposed to bring some kind of blessing. It was just all up in superstition. All right, so what's that tell us for today? We're not 
superstitious. And if I'm going to quote The Office, but maybe we're a little stitious. I'm just kidding. Don't do superstitious things. We're not rabbit foot people. We're not four-leaf clover people. We're not, like, I know shots fired at some people on this, but, like, baseball players in particular. I think some soccer players are like this. They're super, super superstitious about their their routines. Like, no, we're just, we don't do that stuff. Like, um, I, I can't stand it when I'm watching sports with somebody and the let's say there's a field goal kicker and the the announcers are saying, this field goal kicker hasn't missed a kick in, you know, all year long. And then someone says, he jinxed him. They jinxed him. They didn't jinx him. Like, it's an announcer saying something that has no, it has no bearing on the game. We don't believe in superstitions. So how can you love God's law? Well, recognize you needed it to expose you and lead you to repentance. Two, recognize there's wisdom. You might t- it might be smarter than you. You might have to admit, God's law is smarter than I am. I might have to dwell on it. And then finally, recognize God's heart in the law. The law that he gave was to certainly glorify himself. That's what a lot of the temple and priest and sacrificial system is that he would get great glory for himself, which is the best thing for us. The chief end of man, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he was gracious enough and good enough to give us a very clear system on how to do that. You know, it's hard sometimes to love somebody. You want to love them, but you don't know how they feel loved. You don't know what their love language is, is the, is the language we put on it. What's awesome is our God has not left it mysterious. We know his love language. He put it in the law. It's good that we know how to glorify him. And then he has a system that's justice for all. If you start looking at the law, you'll see a God who is radically concerned about the disadvantaged and the poor and the widow and the orphan and those who are on the outskirts, you'll have a God who does not make that his, his, uh, his what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, measure. His measure of justice, though. He will recognize there are righteous and wicked rich and powerful. There are righteous and wicked poor. And we are going to have blind justice. This is a good law. And when you get through Leviticus and start to read it and get a little intimidated or bored, push on through. We love th- we love thy law. We meditated we meditate on it day and night. I butchered that from Psalms right there, but let this be a, a message to you. Love the law of God. It sh- it is your schoolmaster to call you to repentance. There's all kinds of wisdom to meditate on, and it shows God's heart for him- His own glory and for our good when we study the law. When we come back, I have one word on that about economic. Let's call it justice or economic. I don't know the word for it. But I saw a study that said giant corporations are buying up a lot of single-parent homes. It's causing a mess for normal people. And I wonder if there's a biblical case to ban them from doing it. That's me, the free market capitalist libertarian type saying it. Let's come back and talk about it on the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. surprised than I am that I'm about to make the point I'm about to make. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and on his radio talk. You can find me, Corey Truax, your host on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my very unique name, Corey Truax. You'll find me there. You can also email the show at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. Let me give you the sequence of events. One, I saw a story in... I think it was the Atlanta Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
they put a lot of flesh on the story. They gave you people and how it affected people. But here's the long and the short of it. There are giant corporations. A lot of banks are the ones doing the financing of it. Are buying single-family homes all around the Atlanta area. This is not just in Atlanta. It's happening in all the metro areas. In Atlanta right now, it's 65,000 single-family homes have been bought by bulk buyers. So people coming with millions of dollars, not, and not just always people, it's mostly corporations and banks coming with millions of dollars, not to buy a, just to buy a home, but to go buy 20, to go buy 50 homes, so that they can take advantage of the quickly accelerating home prices, sell those for big profit, and walk away. And what they are... The story, the story is about is how this artificial buyer, this buyer who wants to buy a home they will never see, buy a home that they will never live in, but just maybe do some updates and then try to sell it. They, they will do some updates and then try to sell it to somebody else. All those transactions are driving up prices. I will admit I've benefited from this. I sold my house almost, thir- I guess, 12 years after I bought it for almost double it appreciated almost 100% in 12 years. But a lot of what's happened around here in Greenville is not individual buyers. It's bulk buyers. It's big corporations buying houses, putting some new flooring in, some new fixtures, and selling them for big money because our housing values are going up like crazy. And so I saw the story, and I'm troubled by it because here's what I know for our economic system. And I, I love our economic system because it does so well for so many people. The economy is often my number one, quote, political issue, end quote, because it has to do with people. The economy is how moms and dads feed their family. The economy is how we plan for retirement. The economy is how you educate your kids out of the public school system. The economy is how we continue to fund the programs a lot of people like, like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Like, we got to have a booming economy if we're going to, if we're going to see humans flourish, and I want to see humans flourish. Well, one of the features of our economic system is that the way, listen to me, the way that you build wealth in the American system is you own property. You buy a house. The American dream, as it were, that that was sold over all these decades was own your own property, get married, have kids. But it starts with, well, it probably starts with marriage, but it's own your own property, have a house. It leads to generational wealth, guys. I've talked about it on the show when it comes to my family. Home ownership from when I was young, for my siblings, our home ownership will be the transformative wealth creation in our lives. As it has been, I mean this, for hundreds of millions of people. That was what you did. You bought a house young. It appreciated in value. You sold when when the time was right, and you have your little nest egg that you can plan retirement off of and you can make some money. I'm talking about normal people. Upper crust people is a little different. People that make a lot of money, it's a little different. But if you're going to have a middle class, middle to upper class life, your home was the primary way you build wealth. And what we're finding now, because of these giant corporations buying all these houses, people that want to do that, people that want to set down roots, they've been priced out. They can't get into the market, which keeps two, th- two good things from taking place. One, they won't build that wealth. Young people right now in their 20s will continue to go to work, earn a wage, spend all their money while they rent, 
while they share costs with somebody else who owns something, but not have any kind of ownership, and they will squander their incomes, and they will not build the wealth that they need. Two, they won't be rooted. One of my favorite people to follow on the internet, Zach, he's also a friend from college years, uh, I don't think you would mind me saying his whole name. Zach Pippen, you should follow him on Instagram. Uh, he has one of the more, I don't know, I would use the word maybe inspiring lifestyles to me. He's dedicated to his home city. And so he ha- owns property there, goes to church, I think, within walking distance, goes to stores within walking distance. Like it's, what, and he's rooted. He's a, that, you know what that makes him? A great neighbor. This is, his, this is his home. This is his community. He wants to see it done well. And when you don't own anything, you don't think that way. If we could root young people into these homes, you're going to see people really dedicated and accountable to their neighborhood. I just saw I, the house I sold last year was in a, a, had an HOA, Homeowners Association. Those are often obnoxious and annoying. But you know what it, I saw is people bought something that matters and they wanted to keep its value up. They were concerned, and also because it was their neighborhood, they wanted it safe for their kids. They wanted some regulation about how things happen because they want their neighborhood to be good for themselves and their neighbors. And so I see the story. Giant corporations that are never going to be rooted, they just want the profit from it. They're buying houses, selling them at prices that are artificially inflated, and that is pricing people out of the market so that they can't build wealth. An entire generation and class of people can't build wealth because they can't buy a house. And then I wondered, is is that something we should allow? And let me say immediately, my instinct was immediately, Corey, shut up, man. That's not our business. It is not your business what a giant corporation does. It's not your business to get in between a home seller and a home buyer. Actually, I feel like I should say this now. It's, I don't like it that it's true of me. When I sold my house, I didn't know for sure, but I highly suspected it was being bought by one of these companies. And I found out when I finally got the check that it was. And the, that I should say, shouldn't say he, that giant corporation did just that. They changed the floors out in my house and sold, and I think they're renting it out. But again, they don't, the people who are living there don't own it. They're not building any wealth. And, but I, I digress there from, just the idea that it's not my business to get in between a home seller like me. I was the home seller. I chose a buyer who, you know, within 24 hours of putting the house up, wanted to give me all of it in cash and, sh- and, sh- and chose that. And, and no one should be able to get in there. No one should be able to regulate that. And so I am saying then the consequence of my free market capitalist, the consequence of my market's first approach is I am saying to folks who, Cannot cannot get into the housing market to start building wealth. You're just you're just out of luck, guys. The corporations won. They're going to the banks. They've got all the money. You're going to have to find another way. You're going to have to work harder. You're going to have to get another job. You're going to have to move, move to a place with lower housing values and do it and do that the old-fashioned way. You know I. I have two guys at my gym, two older gentlemen. And when I say older, I don't mean old. They're just in their early 60s. They bought houses in Southern California when they were in their mid-20s. And when they sold them in their late 50s, they walked away with seven figures each. That's how much the houses had appreciated. So they retired out in, I think, one's in Pumpkin Town and one's in 
uh, one's in Dakersville, but compared to what they had, they had these tiny little homes in Southern California. They were able to retire and move to palaces comparatively when it comes to space and amenities in South Carolina based on the wealth that they created in their housing. I'm saying to one generation, one class of people, you can't participate in that unless you move. Go to where those guys did. They went and bought houses in a part of Southern California that wasn't developed yet all those years ago. You're going to have to do that. But then this occurred to me. You know when it comes to the banks who finance these things, that they get to use your deposits as investment starters? That's our law. Our banks have to have a some ratio of their total deposits in actual assets or in cash on hand or digitized cash. But they can otherwise use your money to invest. So I, I don't know what our law is. I'm making up a number here. But let's say a bank has a billion dollars of deposits. All, all of its clients have given it a billion dollars. It needs to hold $500 million. But the other $500 million, they can go invest. They can buy stocks. They can buy property. They can go to try to make money with that money that you deposited. Which does mean to me, is, isn't it true that the person making 40 grand a year out of college, working in Atlanta and Charlotte, barely making rent, and they deposit their money with, I'm, I'm making up banks now because I don't know who the banks are. They, they, cap, they, they deposit in Capital One and Wells Fargo and BB&T. And then Wells Fargo, BB&T, and Capital One either themselves or work or being the financier of corporations go and buy a bunch of houses that the person who put deposit in their bank wanted to go buy and by the fact that they've bought the houses in Atlanta and Charlotte and Greenville the person who put the deposit in the bank can't go buy the house isn't there something wrong here and listen I'm not talking conservatively right now I don't sound like a free market capitalist Do you know how much that bothers me my stomach hurts talking about this because it feels gross to me. It feels gross that in my instinct, in this new theology I'm coming to, where, yeah, there's, there should be a reflection of God's design in, in governance. I am struggling with this, man. And I'd love to get your thoughts. We're not live radio, but you can get me at CoreyTruactShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruactShow at gmail.com, or Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Some of you have my number. You can call or text. Like, am I way off base? Is this wrong that we are allowing banks and giant corporations to buy up all these houses? I told you I wanted to make a, something of a biblical case, and this is where I want to be careful because there is nothing more important than Bible. And if I use this out of context, somebody call me out, okay? I, I mean that. But I started thinking about the laws around gleaning. I think it's somewhere in Deuteronomy, there's this rudimentary, very basic form of, of, I'll call it welfare, where you who own, you who have a lot, you need to leave some, some grain around the corners of your field. Important to note, the law wasn't then you gather it up and give it to a central government and let them distribute it to the poor. It also wasn't you gather it up and go directly and distribute it to the poor. It was you don't gather all of your bounty let the poor come work for themselves because there's dignity in it. Let them come gather their own grain. It created an opportunity for work so they didn't have to starve or steal or beg. It was the dignity of work and the person who has all the property being told, you've got to leave some for others. 
And then I remember, I, you know, I preached through the Minor Prophets a long time ago. I think it's eight years ago. It was in Micah. Micah, would, he was saying to the farmers, you're not following these laws. You're not leaving anything for the poor. Or when you when you do leave anything from the poor, you're, you're leaving the worst, you're, you're manipulating it, and then you go to the market and you manipulate it by using unjust scales, you're, you're using faulty equipment to measure it out. I think he said something like, you trample on the needy, you bring ruin to the poor by, by what you're doing. I think Amos had something similar, if I remember correctly. It's at least Micah and Amos. They had cases where they were rebuking the rich of Israel, saying, you're not following the gleaning laws. You're taking all of your capital, your land, you're taking all of your property, you're leaving nothing for anyone to even work themselves up. So tell me if I'm wrong on that. My, my instinct here is, by, is saying, you who have a lot, you the banks, and you the corporations, you already have a ton. One of the ways the poor and the middle class can start to have something, generational, something to leave to their kids, the primary way in this country forever was to be able to buy a home. Your law of gleaning is you guys have to stop buying these houses you're making it impossible for people to get the, any kind of leg up for generational wealth. You're out. You're banned. Because you're, you're not leaving anything to glean. I, I'm nervous even saying that now. I, I don't know if I'm applying that properly. I'm new to this. I'm new to the idea of trying to use biblical prophecy, biblical, I'm sorry, that's not the word, biblical law to influence how we think about our laws. So Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Tell me if you think I'm right or wrong, and I'll just finish this way. Can you tell I'm uncomfortable? I'm uncomfortable in both ways because that's not that doesn't sound conservative. It doesn't sound free market. It doesn't sound libertarian-esque, and those are things that I have identified with my, almost my entire adult life. And it feels like possibly if, if I'm rightly dividing the word of truth, and I might not be, but if I'm rightly dividing the word of truth, then my free market cap- capitalism, my conservatism, my, my libertarian-eskism is having to be rebuked by my Jesusism, and I have to, I'm being told your instincts are wrong, and you need to you need to change your thinking, be renewed, in, have a renewal of your mind around these topics. That's uncomfortable. I don't know, if, but but then again, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, and I'm trying to figure that out. That's the most unattractive thing for, for a radio host to say. We're supposed to just say, here's how it is. I'm telling you, I see a problem. I think I have a solution. I don't know if I'm right. I need someone. I am. Listen, I know I'm getting older. I'm 36 years old. I don't know enough. All right? I'm trying to learn more. It's a new thought I came to. I'm looking for your feedback, so please provide it. Let's go ahead and take an early break. I want to do at least two things when we come back. There is... Uh, reports of a revival breaking out at a Christian college in Kentucky. I want to talk about what real revival looks like. And because this might be it. I'm not saying it's not, but I want to make sure we know how to measure revival. And I want to talk about the He Gets Us ads. I hope I hope everyone's not gonna be mad at me when I'm finished. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. University is a Christian college in Kentucky where 
The internet is a buzz that a revival has broken out. Time of revival there on this Christian college campus, which might make you immediately wonder, what's the definition of that word? Let's talk about it. Here to finish up on the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I think here's the fair way to do it. There's a local news CBS affiliate there in the, that town where Asbury is. They did a news story on what happened there. Before I play that news story for you, here's the short of it. There was a chapel service, and chapel didn't end. So people kept singing, and it's been going on. It's still My understanding is when I'm talking to you right now uh, on Valentine's Day, it is still happening. People are still there singing songs, and it's you know different people have switched out, and different people have come in and out. But it's been a constant, ongoing service for like almost a week now, and that's the definition they're giving of revival. I'm trying not to be super skeptical to start. I don't want to be. That's not my. I want to always give benefit of the doubt. Let's listen to the local news story, and then let's talk about how to recognize real revival. <laughs> A spiritual movement is what many say is happening at Asbury University right now. The event has been going nonstop since last Wednesday. WKYT's Chad Hedrick is live on Asbury's campus tonight. And Chad, I understand they've opened up even some overflow spaces there. Yeah, Bill and Amber, at one point, two chapels here on campus had to be used for overflow spaces because Hughes Auditorium here behind me was so full and they were playing a live stream of what was going on inside. Thousands of people have come from all over the country to be here for this movement and see what's happening here in Wilmore. Here comes the package that he has prepared, the reporter has prepared, but you hear that word broke out that in this Kentucky Christian College, chapel never ended and the service kept going. So now people from all over the country are gathering there to join in. For students at Asbury University, what's happening this week on their campus, they can only describe as an act of God. The last several days have uh, kind of blurred together. The passing of time is no longer a thing. A service led by students that started on Wednesday, still going strong the following Monday and no signs of ending. Just our usual like service and praying and singing, and then it just didn't stop. If you're looking for an idea of what this looks like, it's lots of images of people on stage singing, lots of hands in the air, very expressive worship. People are driving and even flying in from all over to witness and take part in this movement. Mississippi, Texas, New York, and even California. A lot of people have asked me if it was manufactured or set up, and I would just say, like, I don't think you can manufacture freedom. I don't think that you can manufacture joy. For the second night in a row, the main auditorium was so full, overflow spaces had to be created, but many choosing to stand outside the doors and listen. Everybody wants to be in a community, and everybody wants to be wanting the same thing. So, I mean, it's crazy on the one hand, but it also makes total sense. As for when this service might end, some students say it won't ever be over, just take on new life and meaning. Um, it will slow down, and I think when it slows down, I think there's going to be like a huge commissioning, and I think it's going to be like, this is great, and this has like been a crazy awesome week, but um, the spirit that's here is like within believers, and so when they go out, it's not going to shrink, like it's going to keep going and going and going. 
and you can tell behind me the crowd has certainly thinned out some from what it was earlier this evening just packed here on campus of people wanting to get in but you can still hear them singing and praying inside the auditorium so likely going to continue into that seventh day all right that's enough of that there's those are the facts tomorrow will make it seven days since it started they don't know when it's going to end it's been marked primarily by uh, just they, they don't leave. They continue to worship. There has been, and by worship, I mean worship through song. There are reports that there have been times of testimony. Some people will come to a microphone, and that's a good thing. To testimonies, testifying to the work of God in our lives and in the world, those are, are all very good. Now, this is a that's the story. Those are the people and the event. The people of the Asbury and all those have decided to go, and the event is what they're calling a revival. Now, underneath it, how do we know? How do we know if that's a revival, if it's a move of God, or how to take this? Well, I'm not by any means an expert on revival. I haven't done a lot of scholarship on it, but I can look look into my Bible. I've done a, a little bit of work in my Bible over the years. And when I, when I see... Big movements of God, uh, even unenlivening a revival of a people of God that was once dead, and by that dead I mean spiritually dead, it's usually marked by a few things. And so when there does seem to be a claim of revival, I think it's important to measure everything by Scripture. It is our measurement for all things. So for example, I think of... The people, of, the people of God, the Jews in the Old Testament, had lost their law. And when a, a young boy had become, had become king, it was discovered again. And so they just read the law aloud. That happened again in the Old Testament with a, diff- a different leader, where the people had forgotten the law of God. And then when this person comes to power, they do a public reading of the law. They go back to Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they publicly read it. I know that when I look at the book of Acts, which I think we have to call that a model of revival, uh, the, the people of God, the, the Jews, having missed their Messiah and had their Messiah delivered over to Rome to be murdered, come alive to who he was there in Jerusalem during Pentecost. And when that happens, I see that Peter is preaching a lot. That sermon of Peter is doused in Old Testament language. He's, he's pulling on the prophets. I recognize that when Paul goes on his missionary journeys and he seems to turn cities upside down, ruining even their economies by throwing out the need for idol makers, he's doing a lot of preaching. So I know there's a correlation Biblical correlation between spiritual revival and the faithful preaching of God's word. It is the key ingredient to any real move of God is the word of God. The Bible is magnified and expounded and explained to the people. It's what fills them up and energizes them. Two, I've noticed, if I can go back to again, Pentecost, you can use some of those Old Testament examples there seems to be a lot of prayer. That when there's revival, people are reminded God speaks to us in the scriptures and they respond in speaking back to God in prayer. 
You'll see that in Acts. You'll see that in those Old Testament examples as well. I think I would at least add some, maybe this is a little bit less common, but one of the themes I pick up in those Old Testament revitalizations of God's people and then in some of the missionary journeys and in there in Pentecost is repentance. It's pervasive. Even when you go into the the modern day revivals, if you if you want to Google modern Western revivals, you'll find you'll find them. There's been movements that call themselves revivals. Even a lot of those that seem to have had lasting power, one of the things that marked them was spontaneous repentance. People in gatherings or in uh, or in social settings coming forward with their sins grieved by their sins i know that at least those three things there are probably more and i'm missing them i just know when i do a, a perusal a quick perusal of my bi- my bible about what happens when god is doing a particularly special movement amongst the people well well there's a lot of preaching there's a lot of prayer and there's a lot of repenting okay i I don't see that ecstatic, emotional singing is that sign. Now listen to me. I didn't just denigrate or insult the idea of seven days of music of worship through music is a bad thing. I did not do that. I said, if we are talking about the idea of historic revival, God doing a special movement in his people... When that happens, it's usually the word, it's prayer, and it's repentance. It's not, it's not worship through music. Worship, worship through music is awesome. It's one of my favorite things to do. Love the voices of God. Lift it up together. I'm just giving a definition. And so when this Asbury thing pops up, I, th- I think it's probably a good movement. I just want to label it correctly. I want to put the right title on it. God, I think maybe God is doing something in some people on that campus. It's just, you know, it's one of those things to test. Let's go back a year from now. Let's. I, I would love to pick 50 people who showed up to this thing, follow them t- one year from now. How are things? What's going on? Any big major differences in your life? It's one of the hard parts with music. and th- Guys, this comes from a guy who, most Sundays, most Sundays in the year, I am leading worship, if, if whatever that means. I'm the guy singing into a microphone. I'm a guy thinking of ways in which to inspire and spur on the people of God to worship ecstatically or expressively, emotionally, worship with spirit and in truth. I am saying sometimes that can be dangerous because music is so powerful. It can be so manipulative. We all know that you've been to a concert. You, you've been to a concert and don't know why you're having such an emotional reaction to a given thing, and it's because music is powerful. It can create in you longing. Just the the way chord progressions and chord patterns, you, you I mean, I could do this to you right now, and it'd be painful. I could start singing a chorus, and just right before the chorus is supposed to end, just stop singing. It would hurt your brain because your brain needs. Well, it needs it needs resolution. It needs that note to find its completion. And so I'll I can stop there because I want to do this. He gets us thing. I'm not calling what's happening in Asbury bad. I'm not calling it a revival either because big movements of God when they come and we need one.
It's going to be driven by the word, by prayer, and by repentance. It won't be driven. It, it might have as a feature worshiping through music. It won't be driven or marked by people singing in a room for seven days straight. It's not going to be marked by that. That sounded mean at the end, and I didn't mean to. I got, I got to move on. All right. The He Gets Us campaign. I've already done... I was early, by the way. I covered this before the new year. I've talked about the He Gets Us campaign, the money they were spending, that they might have an ad in the Super Bowl. You can go back and find that in the archive if you want to at CoreyTruax.com or on Anchor or anywhere you get your podcast. They had the two Super Bowl commercials. Here are the facts of the case. One commercial had children doing adorably sweet things for each other, and then the tagline was, uh, Jesus wants us to be childlike, right? So adults are the ones that are hateful and mean to each other. Child Childlike people are good to each other. Jesus wants us to be childlike. The second one was very indicative of our age. It showed rage and fury from obviously right-wing to obviously left-wing, white, black, uh, other ethnicities, from various movements. It just showed rage. If you were on the left or the right, a secularist or a Christian, you could have looked at people in that ad and saw yourself or saw someone you don't like being rageful and furious. And the tagline on that one was, Jesus loves the people we hate. And then it has the title. I, I hate the title. I think the title is it's not a great one. He gets us and the website. That's the fact of the case. Now, here's the unpopular part, guys. Well, actually, here, let me go with the more popular parts. I looked into them back then, and I'm still troubled by some of the stuff that's true of them. It appears that when they are, if you go to their website and you're trying to find a local church or someone to talk to, they have no guardrails, so you can run into absolute heretics, LGBT-affirming type churches. You can run into people who are trans, transgender-affirming. You can run into all kinds of heretics because there's no guardrails on who they run you into. And it, it's obviously the case that there are left-wing activist social justice churches that have gotten involved with He Gets Us. That's bad. I, I condemn that. We don't want that. We don't want someone being deceived. If there actually are, if there actually are having a Holy Spirit conviction, in the, the, I, I don't want them to end up in the, in the hands of someone who teaches a false gospel. That's all bad. It's all my other criticism is still valid. Uh, the old, the thing, the word, excuse me, the phrase right now in therapy and the mental health world is clarity is kindness. If you want to be kind to somebody, just be really clear about what you want, what your expectations are. The He Gets Us campaign is ambiguous. It's on purpose ambiguous. It doesn't want to make much of any statements on anything. And people like me and people my opposite, people that believe the opposite things of me, we want everyone to say something. Be solid, put your feet on the ground, make your statements, tell us what you believe. And He Gets Us campaign is specifically on purpose being opaque and ambiguous and just saying, explore Jesus. Maybe there's a version of Jesus that you think is Americanized or conservativized, uh, is, has been washed in some kind of a, a vision that you've gotten in the Western world. So just reconsider Jesus. That's all we're asking you to do. And so we're not making any other statements about any other thing. That seems to be their, their stance. Those of you that you're, you're with, you join me, and you find it to be objectionable because they're so unclear and they could lead people in the wrong direction. I just wonder how you react to the fact that so many people, your opposite, reacted negatively. That a bunch of people on the secular progressive left hated those ads. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said something like, 
Uh, Jesus wouldn't have spent $10 billion, $10 million making fascism look benign. I don't even know what that means. But consider this. A lot of you think that he gets us ads are arguing for amnesty. Your opposite thinks they're arguing for fascism. Your, your opposite thinks they're right-wing ads, and you think they're left-wing ads. Um, that doesn't mean – I'm not defending the ads. I'm, I'm wondering, does that change your interpretation of them at all? A bunch of left-wing people out there saying, well, if they would have spent that $10 million on the homeless, then they could have you know, put 1,200 people in homes or whatever it is, which totally misunderstands homeless, homelessness, by the way. You can't just put homeless people in homes and that, that fixes the problem. There's underlying mental health issues, drug addictions. They'll be out of those homes really quick, even if you give them housing. But you got a lot of left-wing hate for the ads the same way that you got some people that I love, cons- people who are conservative theologically, and we have a great point. Their theology is muddy. There's, there's no specificity. Clarity is kindness. You need guardrails. You need people to get to the real gospel. I mean, I even we found out that the, the primary money is the Hobby Lobby people, the Green family. There's other money, but that billionaire family is a lot of the money. That's a conservative family. They went to the Supreme Court and fought for you when it comes to not having to pay for contraceptives in Affordable Care Act. I'm not defending, the, I'm not defending them. I am only saying their goal was get people to talk about Jesus again. Open up a situation where someone at work is going to, there can actually be a conversation about Jesus. So let's say they tried to do a good thing and did it terribly. Let's say that's the case. Their intentions were decent and they did a muddy, unclear, opaque, ambiguous job of it. They made a mess of their effort. So how about this then? Now you have an opportunity. You didn't spend the billion, excuse me, well, they ended up spending like $100 million total. You didn't spend the $100 million, but there might be a conversation in your family, in your workplace, in your social circle about those ads. Those ads are terrible. You can say all that stuff about them. You might have an opportunity now you otherwise didn't have. And so maybe a dumb, potentially sinful thing happened that could be used for something good. So let's be open to that opportunity when it comes. Thank you for listening to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.